So when I started three years ago, I was mostly listening to metal and hard rock and, you know, Metallica and Kojira, stuff like this. But since then, I actually started to pay for Spotify instead of having the, the free version. So there is way less I'll add so I can listen to it more. And I'll, I'll let the algorithm suggest stuff. And so there is much more random weirdness in it. This is Gregory Lafon. He's a biologist at the University of Toulouse in France. I was asking him what kind of music he listens to when he writes code. Some weird electro and uh, some video game music. And it, like, it's hard to describe. I don't even know what kind of genre it's supposed to be. I suspect you may be wondering one of two things at this point. One, why would a biologist need to write code? And two, why would someone suffer through the free version of Spotify for so long? I'm going to answer both questions. Let's start with the easy one. When Gregory first started listening to Spotify, he was living in Quebec. The, the ads were in Canadian French. And so it sounded nice to me because, you know, the, the accent of Canadian French is different. Like, I don't know, it, it was kind of fun. And so I was very fine with having those ads because they, they sounded this way good. But when I went back to France, after two weeks, it gave me the French ads. And they seemed designed to be awful. So that answers the first question. French-Canadian Spotify ads are pretty good, apparently. And now, let's answer the second. The project Gregory was coding, it was a virtual reality environment for bees. Why create VR for bees? And is it even possible? That's the topic of today's episode. Welcome to Behind the Veil. My name's Alfredo, and this show is supported by listeners like you. If you want to help make future episodes possible, head to our Patreon page where you can pledge as little as $5 a month. All right, back to Gregory. So my name is Grégory Lafont. I'm currently in the fourth year of my PhD. In France, where he grew up, his grandfather used to keep bees. Gregory remembers spending summers helping him with the hives. But I had no interest in working with them myself, just that it was a cool thing. He ended up going on to get his master's in neuroscience, and he wasn't exactly sure what to do next. A friend of his told him about a professor working with honeybees, Martin Jerfa. They told me, oh, this guy is working with honeybees, and uh, he's a super good teacher, and what he explained is super nice and so it's super interesting. And I thought, ah, let's do neuroscience with honeybees. That, that sounds like a great idea. contacted Martin and asked if he could do an internship in his lab for six months. Martin agreed, and after those six months, the question came up about Gregory's PhD. Martin asked him if he wanted to stay on to help perfect a setup of virtual reality for honeybees. Of course, he said yes. Now, to understand why virtual reality is necessary to study how bees learn, I need to take a few steps back, so bear with me. If you want to know what's going on inside of a bee's brain while it's learning, you need to be able to look at its brain. And one of the reasons scientists want to look at bee brains is that bees have significantly fewer neurons than humans or rodents, but somehow manage to do tasks that are pretty complex. So they have simpler hardware, and they can still perform super complicated tasks. So we are very interested in learning how these tiny brains are making the complicated tasks. Okay, but how do you actually go about looking at a bee's brain? Well, there are a couple ways of going about that, but here's one. We open the brain, and we put the microscope on top of it, and we look at it. 
and we can add colorant that emits light when it gets into contact with calcium and calcium is related to the activity of the neurons. So when the neuron is active, there is more calcium inside it and so it flashes on the microscope. If that confused you a bit, don't worry. Here's all you need to know. It's possible to expose a bee's brain while it's alive, look at it with a microscope, and see when certain neurons are active. Pretty cool, right? But there's only one problem. The bee can't be moving during this. We need the bees to stop moving. And the first uh, protocol to do that are what we call PER. So PER stands for proboscis extension reflex. Proboscis is the tongue of the, the bee. And they have this reflex, which is when you touch the antennae with sugar, they immediately extend the proboscis, it's a reflex. So you can put a bee in a tube to hold it still, then touch its antenna with sugar. They'll immediately stick their tongue out. Or if you want to get fancy, you can say when you touch their antenna with sugar, the proboscis extension reflex, or PR, is triggered. This simple protocol opens up the possibility to do some really cool experiments, like seeing if bees can associate smells with rewards. And so you can do Pavlovian conditioning, meaning that you can have this thing that triggers the reflex and give something else, so a smell that triggers nothing, and you give them at the same time. And when you do that a few times, then the smell that was doing nothing triggers the proboscis expansion. And so when we do that, the bee sits on, on a tube and we can access the brain because it doesn't move. This experiment is one Gregory worked on. Basically, you puff a smell toward a bee, give it sugar, and it sticks its tongue out. Then you puff a different smell and give it salt, which bees don't like. Then you see if the bee learned the two smells. So you stop giving it sugar or salt and then puff the smells and see if it sticks its tongue out for the smell associated with sugar. And that works super well when you try to investigate olfaction because the, the bees learn very easily the association between the smell and the sugar and they don't move in their tube so you can have the microscope, you can grab the electrode, everything works. But what if you want to study how bees learn with visual stimuli? Imagine trying to do a similar Pavlovian conditioning test with light instead of smells. Here's what happens. You flash a light, you give the sugar, then when you flash the light, they don't do the PR. It doesn't work. Or 30% of them do, but it's very complicated. And there has been a lot of papers, they try to cut the antennae, they try to do a lot of different protocols to make this work, but it does not. They, there are still people working on it, so maybe it will work one day, but Basically, the bee sitting in that tube don't learn the association when it is uh, between the sugar and, and, and light. They need to, as far as we understand so currently, they need to be able to move to show that they learn. Now you know the crux of the problem. This classical conditioning doesn't work with light if the bee can move. You need an environment where the bee thinks it's moving so that it can learn properly, but isn't actually moving so you can look at its brain with a microscope while it's learning. And that is the goal of the VR, is to have this, this setup, this protocol where the bees learn visual tasks, but they're not actually moving. Before Gregory started working on this project, another team had already made headway on building a treadmill for bees. It's basically a styrofoam ball with air pumped beneath it so that the ball is floating. So I can show you. I kept some pieces of it. So you see it's a very, very big ball, like it's 10 centimeters in diameter, and it's uh, 35 grams. And there is a 3D printed plastic base for it, where the, the, hair can, the air can come from below and, and keep the ball floating. 
and on each side of the ball is a computer mouse with a sensor pointing toward the ball to measure how much it's moving. Then in front of this whole contraption is a piece of tracing paper that's being used as a projector screen. So there's a bee tethered in place so it can only walk on the ball, and when it does, the objects on the screen in front of it move. That's the setup. And it worked. They were able to get bees to do associative color learning. In other words, they learned that objects in the virtual world, depending on their color, would give them either a sugary reward or a less tasty, salty solution. Still, this VR setup wasn't quite perfect. And so I spent like two weeks in the basement because the setup was in the basement. We did it in the dark doing the experiment and looking at the bee moving on it. Sometimes the bees were, were clutching on the ball and trying to move it in the other way because the, the ball was very heavy. And I thought like, mm, okay, the results, it works, but like, it's not super nice to look at them. They, they seem to be struggling. So I was, I was not noting those things. What I did was I, I took over this setup and this system and I tried to make it better. Little did he know how big of an undertaking that would be. Here was the first issue. The display being projected in front of the bees was two-dimensional. There was no depth to it. Imagine you were strapped to a spinny desk chair in an empty room. In the room, there's a green object and a blue object. Now imagine I ask you to stay in the chair and look at the green object. But there's a catch. There's no wheels on the chair. You can spin around, but you can't move forward or backwards. Well, sure, you could just spin around and look toward the object, but the problem is it's hard for me to be totally sure you understood what I asked for. I mean, you could just start spinning around randomly, and if you spin in a circle, eventually you're bound to be pointed in the direction of the green object I asked you to look at. But now imagine the chair had wheels. If you were to scoot the chair right up toward the green object so you're sitting right in front of it, I'd be pretty certain you understood what object I asked you to look at. I mean, there'd be no mistaking it. You could have gone anywhere in the room, but you pointed the chair toward the green object, then rolled toward it. It's a much clearer result. And that's why Gregory wanted to make the VR environment 3D. If you're running in circles super fast, you're always going to get something at the middle of the screen. And we're getting a choice, but it could be random. So, so you see, we, we would, with um, a 2D VR, we get more noise and we get more false positives because it's easier to get the object at the center of the screen. So in the 2D virtual world, bees are shown a green shape and a blue shape. And if they turn the ball toward the green shape, they get sugar, the blue, salt. And yes, they'd run tests where they mix the colors to green for salt, blue for sugar. But because of the issues Gregory described, it wasn't always easy to figure out if the bees had actually made a choice or if they just randomly pointed at a shape. And so once the bee starts to move, the ball moves, and the movement of the ball makes the bee move because the ball is heavy. So that, that makes the, the force positive a bit worse because now it's the ball making choices, basically, almost. Now that it's in three dimension, to make a choice, you need to have the object at the center of the screen, but you need to get close to it, too because now we have a third dimension. Gregory was careful to clarify that this previous two-dimensional setup, even though it had its issues, it still worked for the most part. It's not really random, it's just that it's more noisy. His colleagues ran some advanced statistics on the data to clear up this noise, 
and I won't get into the weeds with how they did that, mostly because I don't totally understand it, but also because the point is Gregory wanted to make a system where the data came out with very little noise in the first place. So we got to work writing new software to make the virtual world the bees were in 3D. After three months, he had it. He plugged the system into the software, used his finger to turn the ball to mimic a bee and test if it worked. And sure enough, it did. That was like, oh, amazing, it works. He couldn't believe it. Gregory doesn't have an engineering background. Coding was just a side thing he learned making video games as a hobby. But it just worked on the first try. I thought I could do it, but at the same time, I was dubious, and then it worked. And I thought it was super fast. I thought I was going to spend an eternity working on this. So it did work. And so I tentatively brought the thing to the basement, got my bees, and then nothing worked. And I was like, ah, that's more like it. <laughs> so he spoke too soon. Once he tried to have a bee move the ball instead of his finger, things didn't go so smoothly. It didn't work. Nothing was happening. We went from 60% of bees learned to zero and no bee move and nothing works. The ball wouldn't move at all in the new setup. And so I was like, hmm, why the, the, the ball doesn't move? And so I started to you know, ponder that and talk with people and ask you know, people that have actually physicists and well, what do I do? Well, what's the problem? And then someone said, yeah, but the ball is too heavy. Just, just use something, something lighter. And so I, I, I dig up some, some lighter balls that were lying around. And I tried and it worked and I moved and moved toward that. So now the ball was the right size and bees could comfortably move it, but the setup still didn't work. And once the board were right, it was still not working because I had made a mistake in the software. At first I was noticing that the bees were moving, but nothing was happening. And I thought like, mm, maybe they're not moving right. Or maybe it's the mice that, you know, if the mice are too far away, then the ball is not in focus and you can't see it. So what was that? And then I was trying to, to make it work. He fiddled with the mice in the 3D printed base. He made sure they weren't too far from the ball and eventually was able to say definitively it wasn't the hardware. And once I was sure that it was not the hardware, I was still looking at the beats and I, uh, I was seeing the ball move and nothing was moving on screen. And then when the bees got like a bit frustrated or had more energy, they were moving fast, the thing was moving. So he went back to the code and started digging through it. He realized there was a mistake that was causing the software to only recognize large movements in the ball. It was expecting centimeters instead of the millimeters or something. And if the bees were making tiny movements, it was ignoring it. So it only acknowledged movements that were like one centimeters. Anything that was below that, the software was not seeing it. And it took me like one month to figure out that I had made a mistake and then it started to work. That's when the magic started happening. Gregory was able to repeat the previous experiments with the color associative learning, but this time in a virtual 3D space. I asked him what it was like, what it felt like to actually be in the room during these studies. You spend your afternoon in the dark looking at the bees running on the ball and you have the light flashing around as the bee turn. There is a lot of skin around and uh, yeah, a lot of introspection because nothing's happening. It's kind of silent. You just have the, the noise of the, the air pump that, that making the ball float. And there's no one because most of the time just by yourself. And you are in the corner of the lab that no one goes to. So you are very, it's very quiet. The, the smart part was to make it 
work to design it, but doing it is like just working on the, on the factory. You don't have to think about it. It's super easy. And so you have a lot of time to think about anything because you know, it's just by yourself, you're feeling the bees and you, you can just disconnect and, you know, fantasize about search stories or something else. The way I imagined it, it's like the bees were in this mysterious void. And in a way, so was Gregory. Just this flow state of conducting the experiment and logging data. It sounded peaceful to me. But there was still something bugging Gregory. Some of the bees, they'd get in the VR world and just do nothing. Sometimes one third or 20% of bees, they just sit on the wall and never make any choices. And that was the thing that bugged me the most during the PhD, because it takes a lot of time to do the experiments, because a lot of bees need to be discarded because they didn't do anything. And I thought that it was because the setup was not good enough, that they didn't actually believe in the VR, or that there was no reason for them to move. So I tried a lot of things to make them move. And one day someone suggested that they don't move because the world does not update enough. So basically, the virtual world that I had been using so far was like there is two big towers in an empty void, unlimited empty void, and one is blue and one is green. And one of them, when you go to it, you get sugar. And the other one, when you go to it, you get salt and it's not nice, so you try to not go to it. And that's it. And bees were, some bees were able to, to do the task, but a lot of them were not doing anything. So the idea that was suggested to me was to add what is called optic flow. Optic flow. Wikipedia defines it as the pattern of apparent motion of objects, surfaces, and edges in a visual scene caused by the relative motion between an observer and a scene. Complicated, I know. Gregory explains it way more simply. The classic way to explain that is when you are uh, on the highway and you look on the side, the things that are very close to you are moving very, very fast. And the distant landscape seems to be not moving or moving really slow. In an empty white void, there is no optic flow. Picture yourself in a totally white space with no objects. If you were to start moving, how would you know you're moving? You wouldn't. And even if there were objects, it'd be hard to get a sense for how quickly you're moving. So that's why Gregory added a zebra pattern to the backgrounds or the walls of this virtual space. Uh, so the, the VR has some invisible walls so that they don't get lost in the infinite void. And I changed the, those walls to not be invisible and to have a zebra black and white pattern. We thought, okay, we we're going to make an experiment of it. We're going to try without background and with the background, and we're going to see if they insert more, if they learn better, if it's worse, or what's going on. If you're a stickler for controls and experiments, you may be thinking, what if it's not optic flow? What if it has nothing to do with bees feeling like they're moving? If they learn better with the zebra pattern, maybe it's just because there's more stuff to look at. If that doubt came up for you, you're probably Gregory Lafon or one of his colleagues. And when we started thinking about that, we thought, ah, yes, but now there is more in the VR. There is more to look at. So maybe they're going to learn better, but it's not because there is optic flow. It's because there is more things to look at and there are Okay, here's what they did to control for that. They tested the bees in a bunch of environments. In one, they were just in a white void. In another, they had optic flow. So imagine you're in a room with zebra pattern on the walls. And then another where the zebra pattern moves with you as you move. 
and then yet another that's a zebra pattern that's moving around randomly. So total visual chaos. And, and so, so the, the conclusion to that was went against our expectation because we were expecting that the optic flow was going to make things better and it just make, made things worse. Basically, the background impeded the bee's ability to learn. They learned better when there was no optic flow. And the explanation we have for that so far is that, that we, we basically the, the, one of the things that makes the VR works is that bees are attracted to light. They tend to go towards the light. And that's why they investigate those, those two blue and green objects is because they, they go towards the light, they investigate the object, they get the reward and they, they end up making the association. But now there is much more light and there is much more stuff to look at uh, that are not interesting, that are not the, the target. And our idea is that the, this, this uh, interfere with the learning because it grabs their attention away from the actual association we're trying to make. And that's why it, it, it flattens the, 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 their ability to learn because now, now things are much more murkier. In the end, this whole project proved it may actually be better for the sake of studying how bees learn to just stick to a 2D world. More may not be better. They tested the new and improved lighter ball, which the bees had total control over, with the 2D world. And the results were actually much better. He did make one more change to the code, to adjust what the software considers making a choice in this virtual world. To make a choice, you need to keep the object for one second, you know. So, so that if you're turning in your chair, you, can't, you don't make your choice. You need to center the object and keep it there for one second. Adding that and switching back to 2D, but it made it work super well. Most of the bees were interacting with the VR, and there was there was not that many doubts about you know the, what I was calling the, the noise and the, the false positives, because there is this one second rule that makes it difficult to randomly choose. So now what happens? Yeah, maybe to study how bees learn through association, you don't need such advanced VR, but it seems kind of crazy to have built a whole 3D video game for bees and have it ever be used. Well, Gregory made it open source so that hopefully other scientists will use it for other questions. Ones that, to answer, you really need a 3D environment for. Now that the paper is published, uh, all the setups and uh, the code is available, so maybe other people will pick it back up to make things that are new questions about navigation. And the three-dimensional VR would actually be nice for some different questions to investigate how bees navigate and how they look at the world and how they make trajectories, but not how they learn simple associations like that. If you want to see photos of this VR setup or read the full paper, I'm going to leave a link in the show notes. I also want to thank Gregory Lafon for taking lots of time to explain his research to me and participate in this episode. And thank you for listening. Behind the Veil is edited and written by me, Alfredo Salkeld. I'm part of a company called Bee Apiary. We install and maintain honeybee hives in people's backyards with the goal of educating people about pollinators. So if that's a mission you're interested in supporting, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd be really appreciative. Or if you're so inclined, head to our Patreon page and pledge a small contribution each month. It goes a long way in helping us make future episodes and keep our business going. The link is in the show notes. Thanks again and talk soon.